Hello, my name is Chirag Shah. I'm a radiation oncologist at the Cleveland Clinic. Today, I'll be hosting the ABS podcast on the importance of gynecologic brachytherapy. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Andrew Hoover, who is an associate professor of radiation oncology at the Kansas University Medical Center. Thank you very much, Dr. Hoover, for joining us. Hi, Shrag. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, you know, just starting off generally, can you speak to the importance of brachytherapy in the management of gynecologic cancers and, you know, with innovations in external beam, why brachytherapy is still so important? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, longstanding data that just supports the utilization of brachytherapy for gynecologic cancers. If you think about it, gynecologic cancers in a lot of ways represent an ideal setting for the application of brachytherapy. You have a body site or cavity that's amenable to, you know, applicator or source placement. And really, you know, an ideal setting where you need high doses of radiation to cure or eradicate a cancer and really seep dose fall off to avoid normal tissue toxicity. And there's really been a longstanding tradition of using those, those types of treatments for various forms of gynecologic cancers and really a lot of good data that's been collected over the years supporting use of it. I think we all have concerns about just, you know, is this being used optimally for most patients? Are all patients getting access to brachytherapy in the way we would want them to? And is that negatively affecting outcomes in patients that don't? You know, it's hard to make direct comparisons of like randomized trials with external beam techniques and brachytherapy, but we have a lot of supportive data that would really suggest brachytherapy leads to superior outcomes. And I'm happy to talk through some of that data if that would be helpful. Yeah, I think that would be great. I think a lot of, of individuals, especially with the emergence of SBRT, are saying, well, if I can get similar conformality, why not, you know, pick SBRT over a procedure like brachytherapy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I, and I think there's several realms to talk about here. I, I think the one that stands out immediately is just dosimetry. So when we're talking about brachytherapy, the, the great thing about it for like cervical cancer with tandem anovoids, for example, is you eliminate that need for a PTV expansion like you would have for, you know, any external beam technique. So you eliminate that setup uncertainty, you're placing your source directly into the target tissue. And I think that's sometimes underappreciated. If you think about what a PTV margin adds in terms of volume that you treat, there have been some phase two studies looking at SBRT for, you know, as an alternative to cervical cancer brachytherapy. And one interesting study that was published at UT Southwestern was a small phase two study looking at SBRT boost for patients that couldn't receive brachytherapy, refuse brachytherapy. And they use pretty tight margins. They use three to five millimeter asymmetric expansions around their CTV. But interestingly enough, if you look at their data, you know, comparing the CTV volume to the PTV, it's nearly double the size. So right away, you're, you're getting this really tremendous increase in the volume that you're trying to target with treatment. And that doesn't even factor in all this organ motion and setup uncertainty that anyone that treats gynecologic cancers with external beam treatments understands. You know, when you're treating cervical cancer, there's a lot of just inherent organ motion. The uterus can move around. There's a lot of differences day-to-day in rectal and bladder filling. So you eliminate all those uncertainties with brachytherapy. And even if you just look at strict modeling studies comparing external beam like SBRT versus brachytherapy, even if you eliminate that PTV expansion, just that steep dose fall off is dramatic and, and the difference there that you see. So any number of studies are out there, but you know, typically you're seeing somewhere around 10 gray differences in D2CC doses for organs at risk, even under you know, ideal circumstances where you're not considering PTV and you know, differences in setup day in and day out that you might see at the treatment machine. I think the other thing that I, I like to try to emphasize to our residents, and I think sometimes it's underappreciated, we'll see a lot of thought that, well, a gray is a gray. So if you prescribe six or seven gray with SBRT or IMRT, is, is that the same as six or seven gray with brachytherapy? And, and I think it's really important to consider that it's probably not. 
if we're prescribing to the D90 with brachytherapy, you know, usually that is going to include a CTV that encompasses the entire cervix and any gross tumor. And at least 90% of that volume is getting the prescription dose or greater. And I think that or greater part is really important. With brachytherapy, you have a lot of dose heterogeneity. You have really high dose fall off around that central portion of the tandem, really right adjacent to where a lot of the gross tumor is. So I'll often find that with MRI-based planning, if we define a GTV, you know, it's not uncommon that that whole volume of the GTV might be getting 150 or 200% of the prescription dose. So you're never going to be able to replicate that with any type of external beam technique, even if you really consciously try to put hotspots on your GTV. And I think that is also important. And I think something that's sometimes underappreciated, even amongst radiation oncologists. You know, we, we do have some large database studies looking at outcomes, you know, and, and I think this is important data for radiation oncologists to be aware of. There's been a series of studies from NCDB and, and SEER analyses looking at utilization rates of brachytherapy over time. And I think we all know this is a concern, especially kind of in the era when IMRT became more popular and, and more widely utilized, we started to see declines in the use of brachytherapy. And I know this is an important area of emphasis for the ABS and something they've been trying to raise awareness about. But around the time of IMRT, we saw some pretty steep declines in the use of brachytherapy. Comparing you know, different analyses, there's pretty, pretty dramatic drop-offs. But that was also associated with worse outcomes. So pretty clearly, if we compare patients that have IMRT boost versus those that would have gotten brachytherapy in these large data sets, we see significantly worse survival outcomes. And that's even controlling for other factors like stage of tumor and, and medical comorbidities and, and things of that nature. So, you know, when you think of all this data together, it paints a pretty compelling picture about the importance of brachytherapy for these patients. That's great. And, and transitioning slightly, you know, January is, is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. So, you know, when you think about patients with cervical cancer that you see kind of initially a diagnosis and moving through, how do you think about brachytherapy? How do you decide upon brachytherapy technique? And then, you know, for those that are performing it, how do you really make sure that quality and safety is a key focus of, of cervical cancer brachytherapy? Yeah, you know, I think that becomes really important and, and, and really sometimes involves some experience. But I, I think one of the key things that becomes important right away when you're seeing that patient is really make sure you get full and accurate staging. Make sure you're really clearly documenting what you're seeing on your physical exam. What's the extent of tumor, you know, size, any asymmetry of the tumor? Are you seeing any parametrial extension? Is there any vaginal tumor involvement? Making sure you've gotten full, good quality staging imaging, because you're going to be referring back to all of those things as you actually think about your brachytherapy treatment. And in the meantime, you would have had several weeks of combined EBRT and chemotherapy where the tumor can change quite a bit. So kind of understanding what the disease extent is at presentation becomes really important. You know, thinking about fiducial marker placement, a lot of times that can be very helpful as, as you're going back and thinking about your brachytherapy placement. So especially if there's vaginal tumor extension, kind of using fiducial markers to delineate the extent of disease there. I think having good relationships with referring providers. So, you know, where I work, we have a lot of physicians out in Western Kansas and rural parts of the state that are going to refer their patients to me for treatment. So I think it's really important to have good working relationships with those providers, make sure that they feel comfortable contacting you early on and, and referring those patients early so you have a chance to meet them before they start any type of treatment and, and making sure they're comfortable calling you with questions and that you kind of think together with that provider about the whole treatment course and the plan for that patient. That's excellent. And when do you start using interstitial brachytherapy? What are some good I think tips for trainees as well as those of us in practice to really think about when to, when to switch over. Yeah, I think that becomes a little bit of a judgment call and some discretion based on physician experience. I think there's some different schools of thought on that. You know, and it depends on the types of applicators you have available. 
you know, I, I start to think about it more as you get into bulkier tumors with more extensive, you know, parametrial disease. Certainly any patients that have more extensive vaginal involvement, especially distal vaginal involvement, you know, I think it becomes necessary to using an interstitial template. You know, there's a lot of in-between circumstances now, and, and a lot of times more and more we're utilizing hybrid or combined intercavitary and interstitial applicators where we can use those interstitial needles to provide some asymmetric coverage of tumor areas, especially in that parametrial disease. So I start to use those more and more as we see larger tumors at the time of brachytherapy, especially beyond about 30 cc's for the CTVE volume or if there's more extensive parametrial disease. So, so those are some of the basic things I think about. Has, has the routine use of MRI increased your use of interstitial, do you think? I mean, I think when I trained some years ago, um, we often didn't have MRI scans, so we, we would often base our extent of disease on our physical exam the best we could, as well as any you know, CT scans. Obviously, with MRI, we get much better imaging, extent of disease assessment, you know, using three-dimensional imaging. And so I guess the question, um, as someone who doesn't do gynecologic brachytherapy anymore, is does that increase soft tissue visualization lead you to often think about needing to use interstitial more frequently, per se? You know, I, I think in my experience, it, it probably leads to more utilization of like these hybrid applicators. And, and okay. I think as we've you know, gone over the last several years, I think that's become more and more commonplace. And I think there's a few things that feed into that. One, you know, as the data for gynecologic brachytherapy has evolved with Embrace, we know that that's useful. We know that dose escalation is helpful in terms of tumor control. We also know that we really want to try to push those doses to organs at risk down as much as possible, and those constraints have become tighter over time. And so having the ability to use an applicator that lends the opportunity for greater conformality becomes more and more important. And so from that sense, I do think the use of those interstitial needles has become more and more commonplace in my practice, absolutely. And where do you think the cervical cancer brachytherapy is headed in the future? Where, where do you see kind of the new innovations and, and kind of where things are going? Yeah, I think it's kind of continuing along with some of those principles with Embrace. So how do we continue to you know, work through dose escalation and, and optimize normal tissue toxicity with Embrace 2? Hopefully we'll get more and more information in that regard. I think a lot of this too is how do we really better utilize the things that we know work right now? You know, so we know a lot of patients aren't getting brachytherapy that should be. So, you know, even that simple thing is how do we increase awareness about brachytherapy? How do we improve our trainees' comfort level in, in taking this technology out and utilizing it in their practices? How can we improve training opportunities for providers out there in practice right now? How do we improve networking so if they have questions about how to utilize these things, that they have opportunities to, to get help? And I know there's a lot of ongoing efforts to do that. So I think those are really important initiatives right now. Wonderful. Shifting gears to endometrial cancer. Tell me a little bit about how you think about brachytherapy and endometrial cancer, whether it be adjuvantly or even in the setting of a medically inoperable patient. So, you know, adjuvantly, this is a really great treatment. You know, vaginal cylinder brachytherapy is something that's effective. We know that it substantially lowers risk of recurrence for patients with high intermediate risk disease after they've had hysterectomy. And it's also a very well-tolerated therapy. So, so this is a, a treatment that I find very satisfying. You can substantially improve someone's outcomes, and they're going to come back after treatment and have low risk of their cancer coming back. They're going to have very low toxicity profiles and be really relatively feeling very well. So I think that's a very satisfying treatment to perform in that perspective. But I think just as an aside, I think that's also an important part of what we do in terms of educating patients. So we're talking about all different forms of gynecologic brachytherapy here, and, and there's really a pretty wide spectrum in terms of what the patient experience is for those. But endometrial cancer always stands out to me. Patients might be coming in, and they will have heard about brachytherapy before they see me. So maybe the referring provider says, I'm going to refer you to Dr. Hoover to talk about brachytherapy. 
Now, the first thing they do is they Google brachytherapy and, and they're going to find a picture of a Syed template or something that seems very extreme. And, and they go through a lot of angst and anxiety and, and worry about that. And sometimes needlessly, once we get to talk about what vaginal brachytherapy actually involves, they, they feel much better about it. Or sometimes there's a component of just referring providers, maybe not fully understanding some of the nuances of what different types of brachytherapy are. They might talk to the patient beforehand, you're going to need anesthesia and all these things if they're just being referred for vaginal brachytherapy. So one thing I've found helpful just as a quick aside is really working with your referring providers, whether that's physicians, if they don't do a lot of work with brachytherapy or nurses or nurse practitioners, making sure that you're available to them, answering questions, making sure you kind of have a good working relationship so you can help educate them about different forms of brachytherapy. And then really, once that patient comes to meet you, making sure you're having a very clear conversation about what this is, see if they've had any, you know, previous exposure to brachytherapy or looked it up or, or have any thoughts, you know, preconceived ideas about what it is coming in. So I think that's one thing I learned early in my career that can be very helpful in alleviating some of their anxiety when you first meet them. That's wonderful. And, you know, in terms of medically inoperable patients, these can be some of the most clinically challenging patients we face in that you're trying to optimize outcomes for these patients who, you know, otherwise may be patients who get surgery. How do you think about these cases and, and kind of what's your approach to, to managing them? Yeah, you know, these are challenging and, and I think these really become a case-by-case -case discussion. It, it becomes a very individualized discussion with the patient. I think it's very helpful to have a good working relationship with your referring surgeon or GYN oncologist. So this is a very important multidisciplinary discussion when we talk about having a hysterectomy versus being referred for definitive radiation therapy. From my perspective, these patients are often high risk for, you know, sedation or anesthesia or having complications from procedures. So, you know, it's important to have a clear discussion with them about what that procedure is going to involve, making sure you really carefully assess their comorbidities, whether they'll be able to tolerate being in that supine position for prolonged amounts of time. And, and so these become some of the trickiest patients to treat in a lot of ways. Excellent. And, and, and for the audience, there are ABS guidelines available for uh, medically inoperable endometrial cancer as well. That's true. And, and just to plug for that, that's an excellent guideline. So any new providers out there, anyone earlier in their career, just anyone that does those treatments, that's a very well-written guideline. Any, any final thoughts on um, the role of brachytherapy in gynecologic cancers? You know, I, I think just that it's important that we all have a good understanding of why this is so important. For any physicians out there that treat gynecologic cancers in their practice, it's really important that we're having good conversations with patients to educate them on the importance of what this is. Any patient that hears about this for the first time usually has some reservations about it. And so I, I think committing the time when you have that patient consultation to really explain what brachytherapy is and why it's important can go a long ways. I would also say there's a lot of great educational resources out there now that weren't available even five or 10 years ago as, as I was going out in my practice. So the ABS has put together a lot of great materials, utilize those. People that do brachytherapy are always happy to talk about it and work with referring providers. So, you know, network, learn from each other and use those resources that are out there. Thank you so much, Dr. Hoover. And, and really to second that, you know, I think the ABS is, is a family and we all work together. And so if there's ever a question any, any of us as brachytherapists can provide and help others, we're always happy to. I'd like to thank Dr. Hoover for his time today and thank all of you for listening. And we look forward to having you on the next ABS podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chuck.